This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. One of the challenges that we face as milk researchers is that milk is ubiquitous in our environment. You can go to the grocery store and buy delicious dairy products, and you can buy something that seemingly replaces breast milk. And this ubiquity and this seeming replacement prevents us from really stepping back, I think, and recognizing how exquisite of a biological fluid mother's milk actually is. It has been shaped by hundreds of millions of years of natural selection to provide a plethora of critical components to the developing neonate. So it initially is thought to have evolved before mammals um, and, and, and deep ancestors to provide hydration and immunofactors across soft-shelled permeable eggs. But across time, it has become diversified such that it is the defining characteristic of our mammalian class. All mammals make milk, and that milk has been shaped to be quite, quite complex. There are hundreds if not thousands of bioactive constituents in mother's milk. These include the fats and the proteins that fuel and build our tissue, vitamins, minerals, hormones, which are really important metabolic and uh, biopsychological signals, immunofactors, and for the developing neonate, it is the source of safe and clean water for hydration. So we need to start thinking about milk, not just as the food that you can buy in the store, but food and medicine and signal interacting in complex dynamic ways that we still do not systematically understand. So here is a keyword search in PubMed that I did just over a year ago. And what you can see is that there is a substantially greater amount of research effort that has been directed toward understanding pregnancy, but not the first substance that the neonate has evolved to consume. And that should make you angry, okay? Because this is a period when you have really uh, important contingent social interaction between caregivers and infants. It's where they are first being exposed to any number of of, uh, environmental complexities. And the milk that they get from their mother is what is going to shape their response to that environment. And yet, we don't know about it. And we need to. The biggest health challenges facing the globe today are things that are either prevented, ameliorated, or treated by constituents in mother's milk. So right now, for the first time in human history, our health is more threatened by being overweight than underweight at a a global level. And breast milk can reduce the probability of developing obesity. Five million infants and children get diarrheal disease each year, and 1.5 million of them will die. And there are constituents in mother's milk that help protect them and treat them from these rotaviruses. And we are increasingly seeing preterm births. And it's becoming quite clear that breast milk is going to provide the most effective nourishment and treatment for these particularly vulnerable uh, premature neonates. That's the big picture. I investigate mother's milk primarily through an evolutionary lens. And I do it by studying the rhesus macaque, which is a bit more separated from us, but makes a really phenomenally wonderful model for investigating the behavioral biology of mother's milk in the absence of a lot of the cultural considerations that are so critically important in human (coughs) breastfeeding. 
Because we still don't know the basic mammalian behavioral biology of milk for any species. I work with rhesus macaques that live at the California National Primate Research Center in these large outdoor corrals in which they're in social groups very similar to what you would find in the wild and engage in all the species-typical friendly and not-so-friendly behaviors. This picture right here represents about an eighth of their total enclosure size, and we're actually able to study, this is an aerial view, we're able to study monkeys that are living in many different social groups to look at group level and between group effects. In the time since I started my research project there, we've milked nearly 300 mothers. We've uh, measured milk at multiple time points during lactation, and we've generated thousands of archived milk samples that we are now sharing with a number of collaborators to really unlock the, the diversity of constituents in mother's milk. And we can do that to try and understand how much does it vary from mother to mother. And every constituent we've looked at, we've found individual variation. Now, that variation is what natural selection is acting on when it influences the survival and fitness of that mother and her offspring. We've been able to link that variation to certain characteristics of the mother and the infant, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a few slides. And we've also been able to identify how mother's milk is contributing to outcomes in these infants. Now, as an evolutionary biologist, the fundamental question I ask is, mothers are different. They have different resources available for reproduction. How are adaptations shaped by natural selection influencing the ways that they're able to mobilize their body reserves to make milk to nourish their young? And I'm particularly interested in how mothers are doing this at the beginning of their reproductive career. So these young, first-time rhesus macaque mothers initiate reproduction at the equivalent age of a 15-year-old human. Okay? They are facing a number of trade-offs. So they have to maintain their own tissue. They're still developing and growing, so they have to allocate energy and time into that. And then if they get pregnant, all of a sudden they face trade-offs between investing in themselves and their own growth and development and investing in growing and developing their infant. Because they're still growing, they have a number of constraints in their ability to, to mobilize energy. Right? They, they aren't as big. They have fewer resources. And because infants, in order to be viable, have to attain a certain threshold condition, their infants are proportional to their own body size, relatively bigger. Okay? So they have more things to pay for, with fewer resources to do it, to rear a more expensive infant. And, and we know across mammals, and, and rigorously studied in many primate species, that these first-time moms are at risk for a number of poor pregnancy outcomes, right? So they're at risk of miscarriage and premature delivery. They are more likely to have infant death. Um, they're characterized as, you know, they're less experienced, so their behavioral care is less experienced. And from an evolutionary perspective, their, their infants are generally characterized as, as higher probability of low quality relative to the infants of a prime age reproductive mother. So what does this mean for their milk? Well, in terms of the total composition of fat, proteins, and sugar, not much, right? They're able to make the same amount of fat and protein and sugar in terms of percent concentration as, as prime or aged mothers. However, they cannot make as much. So if you look at their lactation curves at, at peak, um, across lactation from early peak to what we would consider weaning, but put an asterisk next to that, these young mothers are making significantly less milk, even controlling for their smaller body size at early lactation during a critical period of neurodevelopment and behavior. 
They almost catch up at peak lactation, which is a, a really um, important period of peak velocity of infant growth. So it seems that they're able to kick up milk production during this important critical window. But they can't sustain it. And their milk production significantly declines in the months between peak lactation and what we would characterize as weaning. Now, I call it weaning because they're uh, preventing infant access to the nipple to get milk. Infants are starting to eat solid foods. However, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that these, this blue line right here, these are prime age females. They are robust. And this time point right here at weaning is the initiation of the breeding season for the next, next breeding year. So this shows you that the lactation curves of a young female, a prime age female, and an aged female are all very different in how and when they're able to synthesize the greatest amount of milk. And it seems that neither young nor particularly aged females are able to sustain it at the same time that they're trying to transition to the next reproductive event, but that the prime age mothers are able to allocate to both current and future offspring simultaneously. Recently, it's um, become a, a topic of interest in the media that mothers may be making milk differently for sons and daughters. So, <laughs> wonderfully anthropomorphized baby monkeys. <laughs> so, when the developmental priorities of sons and daughters are different, and I'll talk about some of those in a few, when they may be of different costs for the mother to rear, and when they may have different reproductive value from the mother's perspective in terms of the grand offspring they will produce um, from her genes and, and return uh, fitness, we may expect to see signatures of these sex differences in the milk. And I've, I've been very, very interested in trying to unpack how mothers may be tailoring the milk that they synthesize specifically for sons and daughters. And what we found is that, indeed, they are making richer milk for sons than they are for daughters, that sons get more fat, on average, than do daughters. But there's a really interesting interaction with their life history, because this is primarily being driven by those first-time moms. So first-time moms are making very high fat and very high protein concentrations in the milk for their sons, and very, very low, very dilute milk for their firstborn daughters. Once they are prime age, these seem to largely go away. However, although the milk is more dilute for daughters, they're making absolutely more of it for them. And when you calculate out the amount of energy that is totally being produced in this window of time, it looks like it's pretty equal. Okay. So, in terms of the calories mobilized for sons and daughters, it's seemingly similar, but the recipe is slightly different, and we still don't understand entirely what that means. We also know that in rhesus monkeys that daughters' skeletons develop faster at, at earlier rates um, during infancy, and so I hypothesize that this may be supported in part by the mineral content in mother's milk. And indeed, we find that calcium is higher for daughters, but phosphorus is the same. And so the calcium-phosphorus ratio is higher for daughters, and this is a really important ratio for building bones. When you combine the fact that the ratio of calcium and phosphorus is higher for daughters with the fact that they're also making more milk for their daughters, we 
are interpreting this to suggest that, that they're mobilizing more calcium for their daughters and that this may be one of the physiological mechanisms that allows daughter skeletons to develop faster. This faster skeletal development is also true for chimpanzees and humans. And yet, in the literature, there's nothing actually unpacking if these mineral contents in milk are the same for sons and daughters. Lots of people have the data, but most of the work that's being done on this is in nutrition, not through an evolutionary lens. I'm not the only person working on understanding sex differences in milk. They've been found in a number of different mammals in the last eight years. So you can see differences in the volume of milk in, in, in numerous species. So as they come up, they'll have red asterisks. And the directionality of these effects are not always consistent from species to species. So it's more just we're finding them, still trying to understand what they mean. There's differences in fat, in minerals, in protein, and in hormones. We are, we are at the very beginning of this area of research. We do not know what this means, but it, it suggests that we need to systematically study it so that we can do better donor matching of milks in NICUs when you have uh, premature births and you're using donor milk to feed them. Right now, they're not matching it based on things like parity or infant, infant sex. So that's, that's a direct area where this kind of evolutionary perspective can impact clinical practice. But then the question I always wonder is, how does the mammary gland know? How, how does it know that it's got a son or a daughter? And there was a really, really elegant study that was done um, with rodents, as, as most rodent work gives you such incredible experimental manipulation. And what they did is they moved around um, pups right after they were born, and they created these all-female and all-male litters. And what they found systematically from this postnatal manipulation is that all daughter litters got more milk. They even made litters that were many daughters or just a few daughters or many sons or just a few sons. And systematically, regardless of how many pups, daughter, uh, how many pups the bankfuls had to rear, they increased their milk production for the daughters. But this is a postnatal interaction, right? We can think about how, this, this, how we breastfeed our infants and that, that patterning and that structure can vary based on, on cultural preferences for sons or daughters or signals from sons or daughters that may be different. But the functional development of the mammary gland actually occurs during pregnancy. It's before those contingent interactions. So with some collaborators in dairy science at Kansas State University, we decided to try and investigate how prenatal effects, how the fetus might be influencing the mammary gland. Dairy cows are a fantastic model for asking lactation biology questions because the calves are pulled at birth, right? So any signal of sex bias is going to be exclusively because of a fetal signal. Moreover, because there's standardized milking techniques across many, many farms, we know that, that it's you know, impervious to any kind of experimental, unwitting bias. <laughs> and what we found is that systematically across all parodies, cows produce more milk after gestating a daughter. And this effect is strongest, again, on the first parody. Right? So we, again, are seeing these interesting interactions between where a female's at in her reproductive career and, and what the sex of her infant is. But mother's milk doesn't just feed the infant. The third most common constituent in human breast milk are human milk oligosaccharides. And placental mammals don't actually have the enzymes to break these down which means that they pass intact from the infant's stomach into their intestinal tract, where they are doing impressive ecosystem building to shape 
the bacteria that are colonizing that infant's gut. So the bacteria that we carry around in us are instrumental in our immune function and in the bioconversion of the nutrients we eat. They make a lot of our minerals available and, and a number of other things. They also are competitive inhibitors of pathogenic bacteria. And what we're finding is that mothers, human mothers especially, are making very particular sugars, not to feed their infant, but to feed their infant's bacteria. So mothers aren't just eating for two. They're eating for two to two two times the 200 trillion, okay? <laughs> their bacteria and their baby's bacteria. And this is where things get really cool because when you look at breast milk in humans versus other primates, it pretty much looks the same. We're pretty typical primates in the amount of fats and proteins. We can have some extra fatty acids in our milk because we can get it into our diets through cultural and social interactions. But in terms of what our bodies, our mammary glands are making, we're, we're a pretty typical primate except for these oligosaccharides, these instrumental sugars for, for colonizing bacteria. And not only that, but here you can see humans, we're making a lot more big ones. Now, there, last check, there are 500 different oligosaccharides. We don't know all of their functions, and we don't know um, exactly what predicts how they vary among mothers. And lastly, in closing, mother's milk doesn't just feed the infant and the commensal gut bacteria. The bacteria are present in milk. So breast milk represents a pathway by which mothers are translocating their own gut bacteria into the mammary gland, and then it's being ingested and recolonizing the infant's gut. We do not know how this mechanism works, and we don't know how it's picking the bacteria it uses. So it might be taking the most beneficial bacteria. It might be a random sampling. It might be upregulating some of the most you know, pathogenic bacteria in small quantities to entrain that infant's immune system. We don't know. And it varies from mother to mother in ways, again, we do not know. So this is part of a, you know, the mother's milk is part of a suite of, of uh, different characteristics of a lactation strategy. And this is the basic behavioral biology. But we also need to step back and think about what are the social relationships and the cultural practices that allow mothers to engage in breastfeeding, especially for humans. It's very labor intensive. We can't do it on our own. We need social networks. And in market-integrated societies, we need institutional networks to help protect the mother-infant dyad so that mothers can have all the options and that those options are the best ones. So here's what we know, or what we think we know, and here's what we need to find out. And it's a lot. So thank you to you for your attention and my funders and Carla. Thank you. Thank you. Most living organisms, even bacteria, cannot survive or reproduce alone. The mammalian nervous system is a special case of needing other, a functionally supportive social environments necessary. Myron Hofer called this hidden regulators. There's stuff going on when we're around other. How do we know? Mostly we know what happens when we take away other. Substitutions occur, the absence of Another may, may be associated with abuse of drugs, food, mental dysfunctions, even depression, illness, shutdowns, and even death. The need for social bonds and social support, of course, is not limited to humans. And we've tried, as we've built this new science of social behavior, we've come up with the problem of what do we mean 
and where does it come from? I know I'm preaching to the choir here when I tell you that the constructs are all best understood in the context of their evolutionary importance, their adaptive importance for survival and reproduction. Survival is the first law of nature. It's important that we are not alone. Sociality has survival benefits, and of course, there's safety in numbers. Where did all this sociality come from in humans? How does it sort of bubble up? Well, part of it is the mechanisms for relationships can be seen first in the parent-child interaction. Social bonds form when there's sexual behavior. They form when there's adversity, when there's need for other. And, of course, they first appear most clearly in the presence of the mother-infant interaction or the father-infant interaction, but especially associated with birth and lactation. And this was the logic that led me to study the system that we're going to talk about. The evolutionary prototype, I would argue, for social support then is the parent-child interaction and mammalian sociality. You can see this with your eyes. You don't need to be a scientist to understand how important this is. Yeah. Even asocial mammals, like orangutans, will show high levels of social interactions with their own offspring. So we've, I, wa- I don't want to belabor this point, but where we're going from this is to say that parenting's not limited to the mother, unless perhaps this is Mr. Obama's love child, and we're pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty sure it's not. Uh, <laughs> So going after the biology of this has led me, personally at least, to talk about and think about this really exciting neuropeptide known as oxytocin. It plays a role in sex, birth, parental behavior, lactation, and we don't know what it is. So I'm going to ask over and over, what can we, how can we understand it? What's oxytocin? It's central to the biology of social behavior now. We know there's social bonds social support and sexual behavior, as well as other more obvious things like birth and lactation. Oxytocin administered in an intranasal spray has become sort of the thing to do in science these days. There are literally hundreds of these studies, starting in Europe and now spreading all over the world. They show very exciting, I think, important findings, such as reductions in the so-called stress axis, the HPA axis, Uh, increases in measures of trust, increased attention to social stimuli, increased social connectiveness, brain activity in regions associated with social behavior, decreases in fear. Oxytocin seems to help make you socially bold. Then we're back to this sort of evolutionary question. How did we get this one hormone with so many functions Historically, of course, breastfeeding is a method for communicating between a baby and the mother. But in this iconic picture, I think, this was, I believe, Henri V, I'm not sure, uh, his mistress. But she, did, she wanted herself painted nude. She often had this done. And in the background is the wet nurse because there was no other way to feed that baby until very modern times, really the last century. So we have an extremely interesting model, an oxytocin model, that we can build upon lactation, and that's where I really started my own research on this, studying lactating women. Lactation, I believe, allows the mother to to manage stress more effectively, 
She's less reactive or more appropriately reactive to stressors, including the stressful stimuli that come along with child rearing. And also oxytocin and the events of birth and lactation make a physiological shift, sort of a buffer between pregnancy and the postpartum period. And I think that a lot of this is oxytocin-based. So what happens, breastfeeding reduces reactivity to stressors. We showed this many years ago with a collaborator, Marty Altimus, especially in the, in the face of a stressor. In this case, it was exercise. We found enhanced immune responses in lactating women, in the breastfeeding women. White blood cell proliferation in response to a mitogen in blood taken outside the body. So the blood itself already had the capacity to be different in a breastfeeding woman. So this is the magic molecule, oxytocin. It was one of the molecules of the decade or something recently. Someone made a list and put it at the top. And I think it's more important than we've ever, ever begun to understand. It's a very simple molecule. It has a ring and a tail. Again, it was thought to be a female reproductive hormone, and I don't think that helped the research. I think that this actually relegated oxytocin to sort of not that important until people realized men have it and they have a lot of it and it really matters and then it took <laughs> off okay but we thought it was something to do with uteruses and breasts and that just was not that interesting okay <laughs> however it's been known for a long time that oxytocin was made primarily in the nervous system in the brain in very large cells known as magnocellular neurons and as we, this research has grown, and I wish I had time to tell you the full story, we now know that oxytocin affects social behavior, and especially probably through the autonomic nervous system. It's also a part of the immune system. Oxytocin is an adaptive molecule. It protects and heals the body in the face of challenge. So it has this very interesting set of properties, and I'll argue here today that it also is one of the components that allowed us to be here today, that it was necessary for the evolution of the human nervous system. This, is, this should have been a turtle, not a crocodile, but I borrowed this from the internet, so you get the idea. It's a reptile, and the, our ancestor, which was back here, of course, we are not descended from crocodiles, <laughs> or, or any modern reptiles. But oxytocin starts to play a very important role as we get into the primate sort of line that led to primates. What it's doing, I would suggest to you, is it allowed the transition from reptile to mammal. It permits the birth. Helps to, it doesn't cause birth, but it permits it. It helps to expel the big-brained baby from the uterus. It permits post-birth nutrition, supports the baby, helps with lactation, maternal behavior, and even alloparent parenting, as was discussed. In other words, others, including even fathers, may be able to release or be triggered to release oxytocin in the face of the baby. It facilitates the oxygenation of the brain by being part of the myelinated vagus that then allows this big cortex to exist. And therefore, I would suggest to you that it permits human cognition and social behavior to exist. Of course, you've seen a better, better versions of this. We have all kinds of special problems, big sort of bony brains, skulls. We try walking upright. Our, our pelvis is designed for that, and it's not very good at giving birth. 
there are, there's evidence in mice that you don't even have to have oxytocin to give birth. But I think humans, with all of these problems, may be more dependent than rodents. So we've got to get that large-headed baby outside. We've got to take care of it. There's actually a role for oxytocin in pregnancy, infant nutrition, maternal behavior, paternal behavior, alloparental behavior, and the extended nurture that's necessary for an immature human to have the time it needs, again, we've learned today, to grow up. It doesn't work alone. It has a partner, arginine vasopressin. These evolved, these two molecules evolved before at the ancestral point. They were present even before the split from vertebrate to invertebrates. Uh, but our reptilian ancestor, which I've said I, I believe is supposed to have been a turtle uh, for mammals, has the did not probably have the capacity for social engagement. This came along as we became mammals. And that social bonding and social engagement depended upon adaptations that seemed to be related to both oxytocin and vasopressin. We won't have time to go through all the characteristics of these, but oxytocin's basic profile or motif is prosociality, sharing, relaxation and allowing recovery or immobility without fear, passive behaviors rather than active behaviors. Possibly chronically, it's playing an extremely important role in healing. And it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system, which then shunts oxygen to the cortex. Vasopressin, a very similar molecule, but with a very different set of properties, is associated with territoriality, vigilance, mobilization, more active solutions to problems. Acutely, it's very protective, and it's part of the sympathetic nervous system. Now, the sympathetic-parasympathetic break is not as simple as I'm making it, but working together, what we had is a kind of dance between oxytocin and vasopressin, with oxytocin facilitating social engagement, vasopressin more associated with defense of self and other, and other might be a baby, it might be a mate, and so forth. So this is not quite as simple as we would like. And people, of course, are making whole professions out of studying now oxytocin and empathy, oxytocin and compassion, oxytocin and um, mindfulness, you name it. Vasopressin, a little less popular, but associated with extremely important things like vigilance, territoriality, arousal, perhaps over-arousal, anxiety, a number of disorders may have a vasopressin story. Of course, we got that big brain, but we didn't give up a lot of the underlying core. And the problem we have as humans is we would like to tell our nervous system what to do. But so much of the information is coming from old parts of the brain, and it's coming up. There's not that much downstream information proportionally going through the system. So the old parts of the nervous system are still there and can influence the modern nervous system. It is very hard to just say no to certain kinds of things that go on that are part of these adaptive old systems. So we really need to understand them. It's, this is the reason, though, that cognition is very difficult to use to control emotion. So what's oxytocin? Well, it's a metaphor for safety. It works through the autonomic nervous system in part. It can be regulated by social stimuli and experience. And these effects do differ. The actual amount of the hormone may not differ very often between males and females, but the functions seem to. 
And the capacity for these experiences and the use of oxytocin we're now seeing is epigenetically regulated. So experience in early life especially can alter how that system is working. One of the most, to me, exciting things that's, being, that's coming out of the literature is that oxytocin, which is made primarily in the brain, released into, into the brain and into the spinal cord, but also into the blood, seems to be playing a major role in healing and the capacity of the body to heal itself. And this is just a laundry list of things that have recently been shown. Injured skin, burns, heart, heart disease possibly, bones, intestines, brain, stroke, mental disorders. Now, oxytocin may have some general properties like anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties that help to explain these effects. Physiologically, it's easiest to study these sorts of things in small rodents. Uh, Socially monogamous species are particularly helpful. I've been working for the last 30-odd years with prairie voles. (coughs) This species can be studied in nature and in the laboratory, and they do form long-lasting pair bonds. We found this in field studies in the 1980s. Those studies led to kind of a cottage industry of of, uh, prairie vole work, which I'm really excited about, and I I thank all the people who have been working on these now. It's, It's quite exciting. The first thing we saw was that when animals were mating, they formed pair bonds more quickly. And that was, for me, the first cue. That was how my brain processed oxytocin must be involved because it had already been shown that oxytocin was released by sex. Now, the prairie vole has some amazing qualities. In addition to the ability to form pair bonds and be highly social, they have biparental care. The father helps take care of the baby. There's alloparenting. They do indeed have about four times more oxytocin, according at least using enzyme immunoassays. And they have a human-like autonomic nervous system. They have a parasympathetic, sort of active, active parasympathetic component. This may help to explain why they're so social and why social bonds are so important in them for emotion regulation. Oxytocin can probably be released. The evidence isn't as good as it should be yet. By sexual behavior, social engagement in general, maternal behavior, paternal behavior that we've shown very clearly, or alloparental behavior. Oxytocin can also be released, and this complicates my story a little bit, it can be released by stressful events. In fact, that's the easiest way to get an elevation of oxytocin. Things like social challenge, forced restraint or immobility, immune challenges, and also chronic social isolation, but only in females. Oxytocin is part of a component of an adaptive coping strategy, in my mind. It buffers against stressors, and these effects differ in males and females. So I try over and over, I'm always trying to kind of simplify this down to its essence, Um, I think it's a physiological metaphor for safety. I think it works through effects on the autonomic nervous system, which then affects everything. There's just nothing that the autonomic nervous system doesn't affect. Oxytocin has actions on the myelinated vagal pathways, the parasympathetic pathways, which allow social engagement, the kind of behavior that Kim saw. The prairie voles show these behaviors, and I'm not going to go through all the details except to say that oxytocin is probably mainly... Is this familiar? You too can get this and show it in your talk. 
What's oxytocin? Well, I think, I, I filled in the blanks that uh, Katie very nicely left for us. I think that it's the tip of a physiological iceberg of interactive systems with effects throughout the body. It's only now being recognized. I think it is a physiological metaphor for safety. I think it permits and encourages social behaviors and health and, of course, has consequences for survival, reproduction, and I would argue the evolution of modern humans. Thank you. So this is an overview, and it's a fast, broad overview. Um, so we'll see how far we can get. This is an artist's conception of an early mammal mother. You can see the, the, this is about 200 million years ago. The, the, one of the babies is crying. Uh, the separation cry is, is universal in, in mammals, uh, including platypuses. And, uh, and so the mother-infant uh, relationship is, uh, is universal. Now, I'm not going to say much about fathers. They, they do exist, and there are famous cases of fatherhood. Um, it's been uh, very, very important in my life, despite uh, uh, the way I look in that picture. And fathers can be very important in, in hunter-gatherer societies, but not all. So I'll just say about the mother-infant bond that we have um, at least five functions. Nutrition and homeostasis is an obvious one. Uh, protection from predators is another one. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. The optimization of birth spacing uh, is important and may be dependent on nursing frequency in, in primates and including humans. The transfer of immunity is very important, uh, uh, and that may be proximity dependent. If you're going to have the right antibodies in, in your milk uh, for your baby, you don't want to have been exposed to very different microbes than, than your baby. And, of course, the non-genetic transmission of, of uh, behavior, which becomes very important in primates and super important in, in humans. There's a lot of different kinds of primate parenting, including the top middle picture, the, the importance of fathers among uh, uh, the marmoset family. But for the catarines, which are uh, old world monkeys, apes, and I'll try to convince you, humans, you have a particular uh, emphasis on the mother-infant complex, including uh, intimacy before and after birth, 24-hour uh, contact in the first weeks, proximity 20 around the clock until weaning, very frequent daytime nursing, night, nighttime nursing until weaning, uh, and, uh, and relatively late weaning and bad consequences of uh, both separation and isolation in early life. Upright posture is, uh, is something that intervened to make life more difficult for mothers, and, uh, and yet it worked. The, the brain expansion um, occurred ab uh, about 4 million years, or began about 4 million years after the evolution of upright posture, so at least, at least women got a... Uh, or their ancestors got a four million year rest in between those two <laughs> blows against their anatomy. I'm going to run quickly through uh, some fossil evidence that's relevant to the evolution of the ch childhood and the family. This is Artipithecus, uh, which uh, has small male canines and, uh, and very little size difference between the sexes that might point to uh, uh, a pair bond and, uh, and male investment at that 
early stage. And then in the Lucy species, uh, Australopithecus afarensis, uh, we have a beautiful specimen uh, of a developing child, uh, the Dakika child. And because of, of the opportunity to, to image uh, tooth eruption and because of the exposed endocranial cast, it's possible to say that the Dakika child was developing on a brain development trajectory not, not different from, uh, from apes. Then sometime later, another Australopithecine, the town child, actually the first Australopithecus fossil ever discovered, is also in that same age range, also has a beautifully exposed endocranial cast, was probably killed by a large raptor based on the markings in the orbits of the eyes, and uh, and also is developing on an on an ape like uh, trajectory, so that's the uh, that tells you something about the consequences of not uh, not being uh, in the immediate proximity of of, of a parent, uh, especially a mother. And in uh, in Homo erectus, we have a more advanced uh, stone tool making than uh, uh, than earlier forms of Homo and at least gradually evolving, and we have a beautiful uh, fossil specimen of a, of a young boy, age estimated nine years from one and a half million years ago, who would have been very tall, and whose endocranial cast suggests both fine hand control and a possible pre-adaptation for language. But that's about it for the fossil record of, of childhood. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the fossil record... It kind of reminds me of the fossil record in Toto when I was in graduate school, which is a few specimens and a lot of theories uh, uh, being thrown at them. And what we need is more fossils of, of children. So now, beginning about uh, 300,000 years ago, we have a, uh, the advanced, at least modern, humans. And that's what I'm going to be talking about mainly from now on. The, the hominin brain expansion was a tripling in size, but as shown by a, a group including Todd Preuss, who's here, uh, the human brain has a distinctive pattern of gene expression and is not just three times bigger. It's histologically different, and, it's, and, and as Todd likes to say, it's been rewired and is running hot. Now, the gene expression uh, in development is crucially different. And in this beautiful study, you have uh, evidence in human uh, fetuses of 12 to 14 weeks of gestational age of that gene expression is already lateralized in the, in, in the parts of the cortex that will become uh, the language areas and the right hemisphere uh, contrast to them. And there are 27 differently expressed genes in, that, in, in those parietal areas, but not in the frontal or, or occipital areas. So we're getting a, uh, uh, an idea of the crucial differences in, uh, in gene expression during development that make all the difference for for humans. So I'm going to now talk about the shape of human childhood in the context of the hunter-gatherer experience uh, of childhood and try and put those things together. This is the famous curve, human uh, uh, growth velocity curve, put together by the Count uh, de Montbéal in, uh, in the 1760s, and that's his son's uh, growth velocity. But what was new about humans compared to chimpanzees, uh, uh, first of all and, and foremost, is the, uh, the fact that brain, uh, brain growth after birth continues to, to be at fetal rates 
for at least a year. And that's another change in the transcriptome, although it also has to do with what Wendell was talking about. Um, and in this nice study, the brain transcriptome was showed to be remodeled during postnatal development. So we have developmental changes that are delayed relative to other primates, and the idea of neoteny is sort of getting revived in the genome. Humans are born too soon. If you make that comparison, you can see the, uh, the gorilla newborn is, uh, is perkier and brighter looking and cuter in every way. So when should we be born? There are theories, serious theories, that, that predict that we should have been born after 12 months of gestation. I'll explain why. After 18 months of gestation, after 21 months of gestation, and that can't be. So... The result is uniquely human infancy. But how do you characterize human infancy when you have all this cross-cultural variation? And I was interested in, the, uh, in infancy in, um, in hunter-gatherers and, and in childhood in hunter-gatherers. So Bowlby used the term environment of evolutionary adaptedness for that group of people, which you've heard a lot about today. But the right term is environments of evolutionary adaptedness, and there was no one uh, hunter-gatherer adaptation. And this is just one example, the Kung San, or Bushman, of Botswana. And that's yours truly in an earlier incarnation. Uh, and this is an example of what the life cycle does in humans. <laughs> This is what you would see if you walked up to a Kung uh, village, and, um, and uh, they were still hunting and, and gathering uh, when we were doing our studies in the 1970s. And these are some scenes uh, of village life. Fire is very important. Most of life takes place in, uh, for children, in front of those, especially small children, in front of those huts around the fire. And um, this is cute, but it doesn't begin to describe how complicated their lives are. I, w I won't go into it all, but it's a lot more than food, clothing, and shelter. Women provided 70% of, uh, of the food by calories, did 90% of the child care, uh, enjoyed largely equal influence with men, had strong female friendships, and sometimes took lovers, which I would take as an indication of their autonomy. This is a 34-year-old having a baby, uh, or just having had a baby, I should say. Uh, she's in stage three labor uh, in the left, uh, giving birth to the placenta. Then, uh, meanwhile, the, the baby's head is, quote, molded by the mother's sister. Mother carries the infant back. Uh, the mother puts the infant to the breast, and the baby's greeted by uh, his older sister. This is the position that infants spend a great deal of their time in. In this case, the sling gets them to be uh, in a position where they can have both uh, uh, facing, uh, facing the world and seeing the, uh, the mother's face, and they can, uh, can be carried and rocked, and they're in an up right posture, and they can see what the mother is doing with her hands and play with things that are around the mother's neck, and, and it's, it's kind of a good deal. So physical contact is extremely extensive in this uh, uh, culture for infants. You can see the comparison with uh, Boston 10-month-old girls observed in a similar manner, and that's what you see in hunter-gatherers and throughout the world. I should say that the short answer to the question of whether the Kung are representative in terms of, of childhood experience, the short answer is yes. 
early relationships are very important and extend beyond the the mother but the the mother is the is the central relationship this is one of the the savanna hunter gatherers cultures or semi arid hunter gatherer cultures that don't have tandem nursing or or, or non maternal nursing crying is a very important signal and the response to crying is is very important especially in the in the first 3 months the recent analysis of data uh, on response to crying shows you that others are involved others besides the mother are involved a lot of in a lot of the responses to to crying although the very long responses the mother always gets gets involved so there's a dense social context that produces routine care mothers burdens are significantly reduced and but mothers are always involved with the crying lasts 30 seconds or more and if you think that that's an important experience for for an infant then the mother is a pretty important person these are some of the others you have a uh, grandmother on the upper right but uh, you also have uh, aunts and and cousins and siblings and and also fathers who are uh, involved in direct interaction as well as contributing to the sustenance of the infant so this is a period the first 3 months postnatal uh, that's been called the fourth trimester by um, a pediatrician Harvey Karp and uh and it's a it's a difficult situation uh which is a help, very helpless baby and that cooperative breeding uh, is very important and then at 3 months there is an important uh change which is a replacement of of excessive crying by smiling uh and the rise of mutual gaze Uh, this is why that's been referred to as the fourth trimester. Parents tend to say that they decided their kid was finally human at this stage, and these uh, this is a cross-culturally reliable um, thing. So, the, in, in terms of the shape of infancy, you also have delayed attachment, and that provides the second theory about why we should be born at 18 months, because that's about the time when a, a, when a firm attachment uh, is possible between uh, infant and caregivers, not just the mother, but usually uh, some single primary caregiver more than anyone else, and that relationship is is very important at. approximately 9 months of age in the second half of the second year of life infants in all cultures regardless of how much uh, intimacy they have with with uh, their mothers or anyone else uh, experience an increase in separation protest and fear of strangers so why is that a constant well that's an that's an evolved constant and it has to do with brain development the major fi- fiber tracts of the limbic system are are developing exactly at that time and you might remember that the study that shows that postnatal development uh, gene expression patterns were uh, remodeled in human evolution. So I think we have something that could be called postnatal neuroembryology. We also have earlier weaning than apes do, even though this looks like very late weaning, uh, age age 3 uh, in in the Kong. It's it's early compared compared to all all the great apes and it, it results from from a pattern of of very frequent nursing and uh, but uh, and so we succeeded partly because we were able to shorten birth spacing but uh, just as a pa- in passing what were they being weaned to uh, <laughs> this or this or this 
However, they were weaned to, to something that was important. And this is another version of, of what, what uh, Hilly just showed you, and it comes from his uh, landmark paper with Lancaster, Hattado, and Hill, uh, which shows the, the improvement in mortality in hunter-gatherers uh, due to, uh, compared to chimps due to post-weaning provisioning. So what is happening at the time of weaning uh, uh, in hunter-gatherers uh, as, uh, uh, is uh, language acquisition. And I don't think that's incidental because you get a diffusion of care and you need a, a, a communication uh, system. And this video shows you the, uh, uh, the myelination of the, uh, the arcuate fasciculus, the, 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 the fiber tracts uh, connecting uh, parts of the cortex that are involved in language by age and in months. This is uh, largely a pre-programmed developmental plan, just like the development of the limbic system fiber tract. And, uh, and it is a specifically human uh, uh, a derived evolutionary trait, uh, which enables language to be acquired in, in ways that we don't quite understand yet. Also, we have the addition of middle childhood. Uh, that is a, a prolonged period between um, uh, the leveling off of growth and, and temporarily and, and puberty. And this is a period where a lot of cultural transfer takes place. I can't go into this but uh, the, the uh, teaching is, uh, as, as I believe with, with Barry, is uh, a human universal, and it's far more likely in humans than any other species. And in addition to having an instructor teaching a learner, you have collaborative learning between learners at the same level in humans. So here, here's a, an example of two children looking at something together. We don't know what it is, but they're, they're, they're looking at it together, and that joint attention is very special uh, in humans. Childhood play and subsistence uh, are, are intermingled, so the, there are games that lead to knowledge of subsistence, but there, are also, there is also subsistence. The, the power of enculturation in humans in, in hunter-gatherers is enormous, and it's not just about knowledge, it's about, about emotions. Uh, look at the smile on this girl's face. Uh, an American child would be referred. <laughs> I can't uh, leave you without mentioning briefly the existence of new data on epigenetic inheritance, the possibility that, that uh, acquired characteristics uh, are inherited through DNA methylation. This remains controversial to some extent, but it's been shown in, in a variety of different no domains, including maternal behavior uh, in, in rats. And finally, uh, reproductive maturity is postponed uh, and that, that mid-growth spurt that you see might be, uh, according to, to uh, um, some theories, is a, is a vestige of ape puberty, which occurs at around that great ape puberty around that age, and that we've stuck this period of middle childhood in to uh, facilitate a tremendous amount of, of uh, enculturation and transfer of knowledge. So boys and girls have to, uh, to do a lot of new kinds of, of work once they develop their, uh, uh, their, undergo their hormonal transformation. And my last point 
is that, that uh, we now know the adolescent brain is continuing to, to develop. The, the frontal lobes are continuing to, to develop until around age 25. And uh, the age of puberty has not stayed the same over the last couple of centuries. So therefore, um, the hormonal transformation with all its negatives is taking place against uh, uh, a poorer inhibitory system in frontal lobes. Lastly, I, I have a speculation that about the, the evolution of modern humans, that these, these two paintings show children respectively working and playing at, at the seaside, collecting uh, uh, shellfish in the, in the lower picture. And that has been shown to be very important in, uh, in some hunting and gathering societies. So my, my speculation is that the, that the spread of humans from, uh, uh, from Africa to Australia in a relatively short period of time was led by children uh, who were exploring the immediate environment of their, uh, 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 of their parents a little further and a little further and a little further along the coast, uh, always wanting to get f some distance between themselves and their parents. So nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, and nothing in childhood does either. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.